0: pleasure. I don't want to be sentimental, but you know, doing a lot of these um, residencies worldwide, um, it is true that um, this is a completely unique place um, and a complete village that just gets put together every week. Um, I guess uh, I'll be very brief because I know these readings should be concise and time-wise because you have a lot. Of stuff going on. But uh, this is a novel. It's called uh, Next Life Might Be Kinder. Uh, And the title, you'll hear where it comes from and what I'm going to read. It's written in overlapping vignettes. It has a symphonic structure to it so that there's no linear time uh, line. Uh, And let me just preface it. Uh, You know, obviously those of you that read novels and write them, know that it's hard to summarize without uh, any, you know, reductionist element. But, um, I guess it's been now 30 years, 31 years. My closest friend, uh, who was a professor of history in British Columbia, uh, 34 years ago, uh, married, uh, uh, the uh, young wife who uh, died a violent death shortly after their marriage uh, began and my friend uh, began to incrementally dismantle i mean he began to lose purchase on things first um, his job then his self his corporeal self and then his mental facilities. But it was a long process during which many things were tested including what kind of friend you would be uh, in the face of haplessness and the inability to actually help somebody. But one of the things that happened to him was uh, uh, was that Garrett was his name, was that he began pretty quickly to see his wife uh, nightly uh, on the beach. Uh, and she would be lining up books and uh when he finally passed away uh his sister came to vermont and brought uh, all a lot of journals of his and they included um uh oh i would say 3 years Uh, worth of therapy sessions that he'd had with his therapist out there in British Columbia. Not verbatim, he wasn't a stenographer of his own therapy sessions, but uh, pretty much summaries. And it, finally I read them and um, it was a long treatise, kind of a long argument against the idea of closure. Um, My most hated word, closure. Um, That uh, you'll hear how I've incorporated his life. So after all those years, I finally decided, uh, through help with his or advocacy from his sister, to write this novel. And um, so there's issues of uh, of uh, sort of willful self delusion, but also uh, I wanted it to be a book whose uh, one of whose aggregate effects would be to really look at what it means to. S- to so deeply love someone uh, uh, um, that there would be no difference between rational and irrational thought. (coughs) So this is called Next Life Might Be Kinder. I'll start at the beginning and I'll read just five short vignettes and then uh, people want to talk about this during the week or whatever. Elizabeth Church. After my wife, Elizabeth Church, was murdered by the bellman Alphonse Paget in the Essex Hotel, she did not leave me. I have always thought a person needs to constantly refine the capacity to suspend disbelief in order to keep emotions organized and not suffer debilitating confusion. And I mean just toward the things of daily life. I suppose this admits to a desperate sort of pragmatism. Still, it works for me. What human heart isn't in extremis? The truth is, I saw Elizabeth last night, August 27, 1973. She was lining up books on the beach behind Philip and Cynthia Slayton's house just across the road. I've seen her do the same thing almost every night since I moved roughly 13 months ago from Halifax to this cottage. I'm now a resident of Port Medway, Nova Scotia. At three thirty a m sitting in my kitchen table, as usual, I made notes for Dr. Nissenson. I see him at ten a m on Tuesdays in Halifax, which is a two hour drive. I often stay at the Halliburton House Inn on Monday night and then travel back to Port Medway immediately following my session. Don't get me wrong, Dr. Nissenson is helping me a lot, but we have bad moments after the worst of them. I sometimes can't remember where I parked my pickup truck there are Then there are the numbing redundancies. Take last Tuesday when he said, my position remains, you aren't actually seeing Elizabeth. She was, in fact, murdered in the Essex Hotel on March 26th of last year, and she is buried in Hay-on-Wye in Wales, but her death is unacceptable to you, Sam. You want so completely to see her that you hallucinate, and she sets those books out on the sand. It's your mind's way of trying to postpone the deeper suffering of having lost her. One thing's One thing books suggest is you're supposed to read into the situation, to read into things. Naturally, it's more complicated than just that. It can be many things at once. My opinion has not changed since the first time you told me about talking with Elizabeth on the beach. He paged back through his notebook on September 4th. Your first mention of this. My position remains that as impressively creative as your denial is, and to whatever extent it sustains you, it's still denial. My God, I said, a life without denial. How could a person survive? (laughs) Niszen smiled and sighed deeply. Here we go again. What's on that piece of paper you're holding? You've been holding it in clear view since you arrived. I had copied out from a dictionary the definition of bardo, let me read this to you, I said. Bardo, a Tibetan concept, meaning intermediate state, it's when a person existing between death and whatever's next, and during this state, certain of the usual restraints might not be at work, in some cases, for a long time. And you feel this is what you're experiencing with your wife? Yes, it is, and I hope it lasts till I die. So you've recently found this word in a dictionary and now you're embracing it, he said. Okay, let's go with this a moment. What do you think it means that certain, what was it, usual restraints might not be at work? Well, to start with, I said, obviously a person who's died is usually restrained to being invisible, right? They usually don't show up on a beach and hold conversations. Yes, you've got quite a notebook filled with your and Elizabeth's conversations. That makes two of us then, I said. I've been curious, Sam. Do you jot these down as they occur, like a stenographer? Like a stenographer, yes, sometimes, but sometimes I just listen closely and write things down the minute I get back to the cottage. Week after week, you attempt to convince me you're actually having real conversations rather than, for instance, composing them at your writing desk. Do you consider me a stupid man, I said? Of course not. A liar? Of course not. So, no matter whether or not it's called Bardo, the word's not that important. The thing is, I talk with Elizabeth almost every night, and talking with her is a reprieve from suffering. After all this time, you still don't get it. No, no, he said, I get it. Yet you insist on calling what's happening to me a, what was it? An advent of mourning. Advent of mourning, but I despise the word mourning, I said. And why is that, Sam? Sam? because it implies a certain fixed duration, a measurable time frame, and it also relates to my most hated word, closure. If you love someone and they suddenly disappear, say they die, there is no closure. It's like it's like what? It's like a Bach cello composition playing in your head that doesn't let up. You can't predict for how long. What if it's for the rest of your life? You don't just get closure. You don't just come to terms and then move on. And not even a lobotomy could change my mind about this. And I've read C.S. Lewis, that book of his, A Grief Observed. I've read some theology and philosophy, advice to the bereaved stuff. And I don't give a goddamn who says what or how dramatic or limited or self-destructive I sound. Closure is cowardice. When you lose someone you love, the memory of them maintains a tenacious adhesiveness to the heart. I quote Chekhov there. See if you don't feel very articulate, it's useful to find people like Chekhov to help you out. Well, I don't think being inarticulate is, look, I said, if I ever said, oh, I found closure with Elizabeth please push me in front of a taxi on Water Street I'd be dead to feeling anyway you have my permission ahead of time shoot me in the head I'm your therapist you'd have to ask somebody else (laughs) silence a moment and then he said dead to feeling so the pain keeps you alive to feeling there was silence for maybe two or three minutes last week you mentioned that lately Elizabeth has told you things she'd kept secret but not on purpose yes it's been great I'm curious, he said. Is there any particular thing you'd most like Elizabeth to tell you? There is one thing. It's something lately I sense she wants to tell me, and now you, in fact, want to hear it? I'm sort of afraid to hear it, actually. He closed his notebook and stared at the cover, then looked up at me. Is that one thing how she was murdered, Sam? What really happened, not in the courtroom with the bellman? Alphonse Paget described as having occurred, but the incident from her Elizabeth's point of view her own account of it, which would naturally be the truth to you and should be are you afraid, as you say because you might then experience what she felt at that moment, and yet you want to feel everything she felt because you loved her so deeply not past tense I said, please, love not loved love of your life Year after year, rain enters your diary, as the Japanese say, and an exhaustive sadness prevails. And then suddenly, one day, you find the love of your life. Happenstance or blind luck, what does it matter as long as two people meet and life is lived more intensely for all of that? Because nothing brings such passionate equanimity as need met with fate. I first met Elizabeth two years ago to the day on August 30, 1971 at about 8.30 in the evening at the small Hardison Gallery on Duke Street in Halifax. The gallery was associated with the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. The Swiss-born photographer Robert Frank, most famous for his book The Americans and who spent summers on Cape Breton, was teaching a course at the college and there was a lot of excitement in town about this. He also had agreed to exhibit 20 of his Nova Scotia photographs at the gallery. I was 34 and had started to write my second novel, Think Gently on Libraries. I had an apartment on Granville right there in the neighborhood. My regular cafe was Cyrano's last night, also on Duke Street. Art students liked to hang out there. The cafe had one of those enormous espresso machines that looked like it had been designed by Jules Verne in a hallucinatory condition. Like an ancient sea creature trying to breathe on land, when coffee was being made, the machine steamed and wheezed loudly, drowning out the nonstop opera, which was, much to my preference, usually Puccini or Verdi, never Wagner. Anyway, the gallery was crowded, and after moving slowly along the walls from photograph to photograph, I found myself standing next to Elizabeth, of course I didn't know her name yet, in front of a diptych called Mabu Window, which consisted of two identical views of an expanse of snowy boulders and flat rock outcroppings that led down to the sea. A section of broken wooden fence was in each foreground. The snow's glare nearly made me wince, yet there was a strangely animate quality to the light, as if I were seeing wind that contained snow moving toward the water. To me, Mabu Window was epigrammatic, if a landscape study can be epigrammatic. It held a lot of muted, even spectral emotion, a kind of photographic pencil sketch of a stretch of the Cape Breton coast coming into focus out of the fog. As I stood there, a touch lost in thought, lightly jostled by other people, but hardly minding, I heard Elizabeth read the words Robert Frank had scrawled across the bottom. Next life might be kinder. I didn't look at her right away. And then Elizabeth turned to me and said, you probably noticed that he's written the same thing on every one of these 20 photographs. They're unsettling, don't you think, those words? We're going to have to think about them for a while. We are married. Elizabeth and I were married on January 14, 1972. We got a marriage license from a deputy issuer, found a justice of the peace, Erwin Abershaw, and arranged for a room in the City Hall, 1841 Argyle Street. It was a bitterly cold day, snowing lightly, and the wind up from the harbor found even the side streets. Still on our walk to City Hall, Lizzie and I held bare hands inside her coat pocket. I love this old building, she said, when we walked up the stairs, but there are pigeons on the roof which means the insulation up there isn't as good as it should be. On the other hand, that's very nice for the pigeons. We need a legal witness, so we asked Marie Liggett, Lizzie's dear friend, a waitress at Cyrano's last night, and she was there right on time, 4.30 p.m., and was more dressed up than Elizabeth and I. After the exchange of mismatched antique rings and vows, Marie Liggett went directly back to work and Elizabeth and I checked into room 50 at the Essex Hotel. We had already secured room 58, a four-room suite, where we would begin our life together. But we felt that it would be more romantic to spend our wedding night in a different room, even though it was just at the other end of the same hall. We had a light dinner, soup, and a baguette and polished off a bottle of wine in the small restaurant off the lobby, the only customers. Late that evening, after we had made love, I was reclining in the bathtub. Elizabeth appeared naked in the bathroom doorway, holding a lit candle in an old-fashioned candle holder with a curved handle and wax catcher at the base, and after what she said, I thought I'd lose my breath from laughing. Nodding her head toward the bedroom, then languorously moving her free hand across her breasts then down along her hips she said in her bay and her best may west imitation that was very nice but next time let's try it without all the mistakes <laughs> um just a few more of these vignettes um in the center of this book is a novel, which is a very spectral, haunting novel called The Victorian Cheselange. And The Victorian Cheselange is written by a British writer named Marganita Lasky. I would guess that not too many people know her, but in the 50s and 60s, she was extraordinarily popular in England. And she wrote these rather uh, unusual sort of Victorian mysteries. So uh, Elizabeth is writing... Uh, as my friend's wife was writing a, a Ph.D. thesis on Marganita Lasky. And this is sort of the origin of that. <clears throat> the Victorian Chaise Lounge. Two mornings after our wedding, at about 8.30, there was a knock at the door. We were now set up in our apartment, room 58. We only had a bed, a desk, rocking chair in the living room, and four ladder-back chairs at the kitchen table. Elizabeth opened the door... I was sitting at the table having coffee. This was the first time we'd laid eyes on Alphonse Paget. He looked about 50. Later I learned he was 43. He wore his bellman's uniform with epaulets, a bellman's cap, and trousers with a dark stripe that ran the length of the legs. He was roughly six feet tall, handsome, though a bit gaunt. His black hair was slicked back, and he had a noticeable scar about three inches long, horizontal as a natural furrow on his forehead. Above his left breast pocket, mister Paget was stitched in gold cursive. A Mrs. Lattimore, he said, then checked a piece of paper. I have the right room, don't I? Yes, you do, Elizabeth said. Then she did an odd thing. Lizzie had on a Dalhousie University sweatshirt, jeans and black tennis shoes and socks, but immediately went and put on a sweater. The radiators were working nicely and the apartment was well heated. Looking back, I don't comprehend this in some mystical way, like she was feeling a premonitory chill at the sight of Alphonse Paget. It's just that the sweater didn't seem necessary. When she came back to the living room, she said, I take it you're delivering my chaise Brought it up on the service lift, he said. He stepped aside and we could see it in the hallway. My thought was that he must be physically strong to move furniture like this. He then picked it up and carried it into the living room and set it down. And then he said something definitely off tilt. Some men get to carry a bride over the threshold, me a musty old piece of furniture. He left without another word, shutting the door behind him. We more or less shrugged this incident off. Elizabeth looked so happy to see the chaiselange. Did you see the name? Elizabeth said, Mr. Paget." Now, I said, I get to sit on this uh, Chaise lounge you've been telling me so much about. Well, we have to break it in, Elizabeth said. She slid the sweater off over her head, and then, her hair now disheveled, began to lift the sweatshirt off. Elizabeth, you said it was from the Victorian times. There's a good chance it's already been broken in. Not by us, darling not by us newlyweds. T-shirt now fallen to the floor. She was naked from the waist up. She bunched up her hair and held it above her head. And whenever she held her hair up that way, it was my fall from grace. I'm going to take the rest of my clothes off and we'll lie down on this Victorian chaise lounge, she said. And later, but let's give it some time, I'm going to tell you all about how I discovered Marganita Lasky and especially her novel, The Victorian Chaise because you'll want to know all the details. And I'm ready to tell you, I know what you're thinking, that there's not a room enough for both of us. But you know what? There's room enough if we fit ourselves together. Elizabeth removed her shoes and socks, her jeans and panties. I got out of my clothes, too, adding to the pile on the kitchen floor. I lay down on the chaiselange, with her legs around my hips, Elizabeth slid me into her. She leaned forward, her breasts against my chest, her arms tight around my neck and shoulders, moving to her rhythm, which became mine. I'm all jostled and alert, but maybe not. I'm just not sure, she said. Fragments, like things said in sleep. I don't know where they came from. I believe she was speaking to me, though maybe as much to herself. Attempting to turn over in tandem, we almost fell off the cheselange, but managed not to. Then her legs were around my shoulders, and she pulled me deep inside and said, I was so thirsty, and now I'm not. Somehow these non-sequiturs intensified everything, but I will be. And then trembling convulsively, I'm there, and then I was. It wasn't more than three minutes, our breaths ratcheting down to near normal, before she said, stay inside me, okay, you know, for as long as you can. We lay side by side, her legs stretched over mine, and she was speaking over my shoulder, more or less into the maroon velvet back of the cheselange, with its ornate wooden framework and equally ornate wooden legs. I'd put things off, she said. I had to find a topic for my dissertation. Quickly. I mean in a week. My professors were on my case. I don't blame them. They wanted good things for me. I spoke with my advisor, Professor Oshard, Oshard asked if there was anyone whose novels I secretly loved. Putting it a bit provocably, provocatively, I thought, but I knew he meant novels, and I thought were excellent, that I thought were excellent, but nobody much talked about, let alone taught them. He wanted me to discover someone new on his behalf, I think. I understood that right away, and I thought that was great, so I said yes. Margarita Lasky's novels. And I was so happy that he had never heard of Margarita Lasky. And here I thought he'd read everything. Um, Okay, I'm going to read you a therapy session. This, this section, is, this chapter is called Soon Fly and Closure. Quite late in today's session, I handed Dr. Nissenson an article from the Toronto Star that someone had left in my cafe at, at, in the cafe at Vogler's Cove. I'd cut out the article and carried it in my wallet. He read it quickly, looked up and said, so I see you've underlined one word. Okay, I said, so this woman, Dr. Nissenson looked down at the article, Mary Yamada, age 29, he said, and gave the clipping back to me. Yes, this woman is shot and killed by some lunatic while walking home from a movie. The next day, the murder took place at 9 at night, the very next day, some idiot from the mayor's office I read from the article, Mayor Crombie visited the bereaved family of Mrs. Yamada and offered his condolences. He said he would pray for their daughter and for them to soon find closure with this tragedy. Dr. Nissenson said, and here I see you're taking the opportunity to reaffirm your feelings about the hated word. All right. Thank you, Mayor I said giving a Yamada family member my most scathing tone. It's been more than 12 hours already. We should be over this. Maybe we should go grocery shopping. Maybe we should go to the movies. Oh, by the way, Mayor Shithead, where's the Office of Closure? Can you write down the address, please? We'll drop by as soon as we can. Are there many forms to fill out? Oh, by the way, did you actually say soon find closure? How soon? Get out of my house, you goddamn fucking useless moron. Guess what? I am not voting for you next time. Dr. Nicholson didn't seem to know where to go from there. I didn't know either. We said nothing for 10 or so minutes. A charitable way to view this, however, was we afforded him time to write in his notebook. Um, am I okay for time, just a little longer? Um, another therapy session. Dr. Nissenson was nursing a cold. He had a humidifier on, but the sound didn't interfere with our conversation. He was wearing a woolen vest under his sports coat. I saw this program on television, I said the moment I sat down. It's called They Crossed Over. The guy whose show it is, he's a charlatan. I've never seen it, he said. Describe it for me. Okay, the guy's name is David Corder, about 40, average looking, but so obviously average looking, supposed to be a kind of everyman, I suppose, regular fellow with this astonishing gift of being able to contact loved ones who have crossed over. Yeah, and the dead are sending messages, sending signals of some sort exclusively to this David Corder. He's the only one that can hear these messages and deliver them to the grieving family's attention and decipher the messages for them. I hate this guy. He's such a fake, and he's got all these vulnerable people in the palm of his hand. I can't even imagine how much money he makes off this. I mean, he'll never run out of messages, will he? His show will run for a century. And the grieving people, do you think they are chosen beforehand? They have to be, I said. Maybe they have to audition. Prove they're the most desperate to contact their loved ones who died. The thing is, David Corder's pet word is closure. Let's see if we can find some closure here. He shuts his eyes. He sees a mailbox. So he says, did your father or sister, or wife, or whoever's crossed over, did he have a mailbox? <laughs> a mailbox, and the family falls apart. They look at each other, and they can't believe their ears. How could he know that? <laughs> I, I think, Dr. Nissensen said, that you're equally disgusted by the charlatan, Doc David Corder, and the people who volunteered to expose their neediness and naivete on television. All of the above, I said. But you appear to distinguish yourself from these television grievers. Distinguish? Well, in your experience with your wife Elizabeth, you don't need any spiritual broker or middleman. You don't need a David Quarter to contact her. You are privileged in that. It's good you're sitting down, Dr. Nissenson, because you aren't going to believe what I'm going to say. I actually agree with you. Here's my problem, though, I said. I've become addicted to this program. I so seldom watch television, hardly ever. An old movie, maybe three times a week. I listen to the radio. I'm a radio person. Would you suggest that I watch this program? No, nah, that would give it a larger audience. That's funny, Sam, but for the sake of deepening my understanding, it's on Sunday at 5 p.m. Sunday after the religious programs. The same lineup, yes. And Corder's got a preacherly sanctimoniousness about him. Know what else? He's on the lecture circuit. What? Conducting mass seances in a stadium? Not quite that, I don't think. I trust you realize that using other people's vulnerabilities as a kind of business venture is hardly new, Sam. But let's get back to your addiction, so-called. How does it manifest itself? He goes on a bit about this. Dr. Nistensen looked at me and said, what do you get out of this television program? I get rage. Well, that's about as opposite an emotion as can be imagined compared to, say, a conversation with people you love. I was wondering, Sam, if you've ever thought of staying back up the beach near Philip and Cynthia's house, or in their living room, or on their porch, and wait for your wife to show up on the beach, and then join her there. To what purpose? You keep suggesting these little tests. Do you realize this? To verify? No, my intention is not to test you about anything, Sam. Let me put it directly to you. It's been nine months since Elizabeth was murdered, and you are still seeing her lining books on the be- up on the beach. Holding onto the glass of water tightly, I flung the water at Dr. Nissenson, It splattered across his shirt and vest, and some hit his face. I see, he said. I see, I see, I see, I see, I see. Can you please stop saying that? You don't see. It's me who sees. I see Elizabeth almost every night. It's just water, Sam, so I won't add my dry-cleaning bill to your fee this week. I apologize, I said. This David Corders really got to me, I guess, plus that word. Yeah, I noticed you didn't like me using it. Back to this idea of addiction. As I sit here drying out, perhaps try and consciously stay away from the television at five o'clock on Sundays. Discipline yourself. This goes on for quite a while, but you get the gist. And I'll end with a, a short vignette. So you can see that the book goes It stays with their married life till the very end, but then it's interwoven with um, the plot. This is called Kiss Me Upward from My Knees. Sam, you need some employment, Elizabeth said. This was a few days after her first dance lesson in the intermediate Lindy at the hotel. We were down to $320 in our bank account. But I'm working on my novel every day, I said. I know, she said. If I know anything, I know that. Can't we take turns being the practical one? I'll go first. I saw this advertisement, and I think it would be great for you. The CBC has an interesting thing going on, and they're looking for writers. You could write for radio. Listen, I've got the clipping right here. Quote, CBC Radio is undertaking an ambitious recreation of the cultural atmosphere of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, featuring the most popular radio entertainments of those decades. This is something that I wrote for, Uh, so I stuck it in here. Okay, I said, I admit, it does sound interesting. You can't do business with Hitler. That's one program they're hiring writers for. That's from the 1940s. The Shadow of Fu Manchu, that's another. But there's the one I thought you'd be perfect for, darling. And I think I even remember hearing it on the radio when I was a little girl. It's called Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons. Melodrama's about a detective name. Let me guess, Mr. Keene. I typed up and sent your resume last week, including a copy of your first novel. You already went and did that? Yes, I did. And did I get a response yet? In fact, they called this morning when you were out. You have an interview. Sam, my fellowship money is dwindling fast. I can waitress. I don't mind. I'd apply for the radio work myself, but my brain doesn't work that way, and I couldn't make up dialogue and all that. Besides, Marganita Lasky would be too jealous a mistress. I have to stick with her. The interview, 4 p.m. tomorrow, CBC office on Cogswell. The interview went well. And the CBC gave me four cassettes of episodes of Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons, Part 1 through 4, of the case of the author who lost his soul, which originally ran on the NBC Blue Network. For my audition, I was asked to write a fifth episode to extend the storyline, even though the original broadcast story had been fully concluded. I played the episode for Elizabeth that night. Oh, this will be a piece of cake for you, she said. I'm not sure I like that response. Seeing that the title is The Author Lost His Soul. It's fiction, Sam. Just pretend to be somebody else. I wrote the episode and got the job to celebrate my becoming employed. Elizabeth made salad niçoise with crème brûlée for dessert. At the kitchen table I was typing away at my first paid assignment to extend the episode of The Case of Lucy Dare's Real Family, originally broadcast in 1939. Elizabeth was wearing only a denim work shirt, a few sizes too big for her, held together by a single button at the navel. Making your favorite aphrodisiac salad for you, darling. I brought an expensive bottle of Chablis, too, way too expensive, but I couldn't be happier. She took a small fillet of tuna from the refrigerator and seared it for a few minutes in a pan slicked with olive oil. She put two eggs on to boil. She took out a head of lettuce and washed it leaf by leaf under the spigot, pressing each on a piece on a paper towel to soak up the moisture before setting it in a big wooden bowl. She put two large red potatoes, cut in quarters in a pot of water, and lit a flame under it. She put a handful of green beans on to boil. She took out a breadboard and cut three scallions into quarter-inch pieces and pushed them with a knife into a saucepan where she sauteed them for a minute or two in olive oil. On a separate board, she cut the tuna into quarter-inch pieces. She took out the potato, peeled the skins, and cut the pieces into rectangles. She took up the eggs with a spoon and ran each under the cold water. And then she cracked and peeled their shells and sliced the egg into, sa- into the salad. She put in the potatoes and fish and scallions. She sprinkled in peppercorns, laid the green beans on top, and dropped in half a dozen or so sweet grape tomatoes. She emptied a can of white kidney beans in the bowl. She added an oil and vinegar dressing, tossed it all lightly just twice with long wooden spoons and set the bowl on the table. She brought out two plates and forks and cloth napkins. She took a bottle of wine, white wine from the refrigerator and poured us each a glass. I was famished, and the salad looked so good. Thank you for all this, I said, and reached for the bowl and wooden spoons that lay crosswise on top. But before she sat down, Elizabeth put on an album by Marianne Macdonald, Winter Trees, on the phonograph, and set the needle on the song called Upward. Fiddle guitar and flute accompaniment with a voice straight from the Cape Breton Highlands. The first stanza was, It only takes one glass of wine to do as I please. The breeze gently unbuttons my blouse. I comb your hair with my fingers. You kiss me upward from my knees. As the song continued, Elizabeth opened the button of her denim shirt. The song continued. Last night I was reading an Acadian romance, all pounding hearts and rain, and owls at prayers in the trees, when, my sweet love, you set my book beside the pillow and kissed me upward from my knees. Get the hint, she said. She lay down on the Victorian chaise lounge. Elizabeth used to say, I have certain defining impulses. Thank you.